You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. A paraphrase of Genesis 3. Of all the creatures created by Elohim, the serpent remained the wisest of them all. Without anyone noticing, he slipped into the garden and devised a scheme to test the wisdom of the man and the woman. In the end, the serpent won their battle of wits, and the price for humanity's failure was chaos. As a result of their newfound knowledge, the man and the woman were introduced to shame, and unable to stand the sight of the other, they covered themselves and hid. It wasn't long until the Creator found out about the serpent's plot. As a result of their disobedience, Elohim withdrew his presence from the man and woman and let them be what they desired, gods in their own image, left alone to order the world without the Creator's guiding hand. As for the serpent, he was cursed and left to crawl on his belly, his chaotic influence limited by the Creator's word. Of course, his plotting didn't stop, and knowing his demise at the hand of the woman's seed was certain, he slithered into the darkness to plan their ruin. Praise be to God. It's very anointed with oil. Why don't you just pass me the other mic? Yeah. It's a holy mic. Maybe I shouldn't treat it. I got it, I got it. Maybe the sermon would be better if I kept it. We'll find out. (laughs) Weird thing to be say praise be to God to. <laughs> and yet that's where we are in the story. Um, if you're joining us, and I know we have some family here today, we are in the middle of a three-year series that is taking us through the story of God, the story of the scriptures. And last week we found ourselves in Genesis 2 and we're introduced to humanity, this other character in this narrative, and now in Genesis 3, we're introduced to another character, another player in this play, and it's the serpent. If you remember last week, I left us with a little hint of the tension of this narrative, that the man and woman in their nakedness will be confronted with the serpent and his craftiness. And so the way we've been approaching this this series is to just retell the story. Oftentimes, we... We come to church and we sit and we listen to sermons and they have lots of great things to tell us, but very, not that often do we actually just sit and just listen to the story, to to meditate on it, to to dwell on it. So that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to take us through this story, retelling this story, and I want you guys to sit back and listen. I want you to take it in. You know, there's a great scholar named Dr. Michael Heiser. He passed away recently. But he had, this great, he, he had this great line where he says, Christians would benefit more if they approached reading the scripture like reading a novel. Because when you read a novel, you're, you're clued into, like, maybe that phrase will come up again or, or, or maybe that character will reappear. And so that's what I want you to do. Imagine we're like fireside. You're sitting, by the, sitting around the fire. We're hearing the story for the very first time. I wonder what you'll walk away with. So let's pray and then we'll dive into the story. Father, we are so grateful for your unfailing love and your grace that gave us the story so that we might understand you and know you fully. 
God, would you give us ears to hear as we listen to this story? Would we hear it afresh? Would we avoid the comforts of, man, I know the story already. I know how it goes. And would we, by your grace, have the ability to hear it with new ears and receive it with new hearts? Through the matchless name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So let's dive in. Imagine for a moment that you're walking in the woods alone. Everything is quiet and serene, and you are lost in thought as you gaze through the trees at the clouds overhead. That is, until you feel a tingle at the base of your spine, and the hairs on your arms stand at attention, you get the feeling that something is watching you, and then you hear it. A rustle in the grass, a barely audible hiss. Instantly you freeze as your body debates whether to fly or fight. But then it's silent and the hissing subsides. And in that moment, you can't help but wonder why snakes evoke such a primal reaction in your quote-unquote civilized mind. Well, maybe our fear begins here in Genesis 3, with a serpent who seems to be the embodiment of chaos itself. While this creature, as far as we know, is indeed part of the created order, it is also different from the other creatures in the garden. It is crafty and wise and belongs to that order of creatures who find themselves at home in the primordial chaos of creation the violent, watery wastelands that God ordered and restrained with his word. It's this serpent who wanders into the garden to ask the woman a question. Did God really say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Hmm. The question seems benign. Maybe the snake is curious. But when you listen to the question again, the woman would have heard it as an obvious perversion of what God really said. God, the creator, Elohim, had in fact given the man and woman access to the full range of his bountiful blessing. Everything, every fruit-bearing tree their eyes could lay on was theirs for the taking. There was no limit to his abundance. There was no limit to what he offered them. All of it was theirs to enjoy. A gracious gift, a sign of the creator's generous nature. But the serpent is crafty. With his question, he begins to see doubt, scarcity, This idea that maybe the creator is withholding from the man and woman suddenly becomes a category lodged in the woman's mind. And what was once a foreign concept now becomes a new category of thinking. And without her even realizing, the serpent's doubt slowly begins to infect her words as she responds, well, the creator said... You shall not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, nor can you touch it. If you do, you will surely die. 
The woman adds to God's words a prohibition he never gave. Surely, yes, he said, you cannot eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, but never did he say, you cannot touch it. As if she's trying to respond to the serpent's game where, where she introduces scarcity, where he introduces scarcity, she introduces legalism as if she could work against his doubt by adding extra rules for herself. But the serpent notices the slip up. Encoiled and ready, he strikes. And he says, you won't die. The creator knows if you eat of the tree, you will be like him. A God knowing good and evil for yourself. The serpent is crafty because the serpent didn't lie this time. And for the first time, listening to the words of the serpent, the woman doubts the creator for the first time. And unbeknownst to her, this seed of chaos begins to fester in her heart. Why does the creator want us ignorant, she asks herself. Why does he get to determine what is good and what is evil? Her words are familiar. It's a question we ask today. Why does God get to say what is good to do with my body? Why does God get to say I have to turn the other cheek. Why does God? That's the question in her mind. And maybe, just maybe, rather than trusting this creator, it's time the woman took destiny into her own hands. And so, looking at the fruit, she thinks to herself, he must want his throne for himself. He never wanted to share and he'll never share the knowledge he has and will never be like God. The irony, because she already was. But with her mind made up, she takes from the tree and eats. And it's like nothing she's ever tasted. It's sweeter, more fragrant than any of the other fruit in the garden. And while she ate, her husband's been watching the entire time, not saying a word. Silent, curious, as if listening to the serpent, he forgot who he was, that this was his garden, the one that God had asked him to tend, the one that the creator has said to expand the boundaries and fill it with his bountiful blessing, the one that he had left in charge of his good creation, and almost as if he's listening to the serpent, he forgets his job. And overwhelmed with curiosity, he reaches out to take a bite, savoring the flavor, the sudden sweetness dancing on his tongue. But then there's a bitter taste in his mouth and he recognizes something is different. He can't stand the sight of himself. As he looks down where once he saw beauty, he sees blemish and brokenness. 
And then as he looks up and gazes at his wife, her gaze, which was once inviting and healing, luxurious and beautiful, it seems to burn like fire. And he ducks his eyes as if he can't take her gaze anymore. And all of a sudden, questions he's never thought to ask himself begin rattling off in his brain like, what is she thinking? How does she see me? And her standing across from her husband, she begins to think the same things. What does he want from me? What are, in, or what are his intentions? And all of a sudden, the most intimate of couples begins to draw farther apart. And they, they duck their eyes. They can't stand their naked forms. What was once beautiful and gorgeous and life-giving is now full of chaos and deceit. And as the questions race through their minds, they squirm under the stare of the other. And unable to take it anymore, they do what they only know to do. They cover up their nakedness. Never again to look at each other the same. And this new feeling, like the fruit, was like anything they experienced before. And then it was evening. The time when the creator went for a walk in his garden to enjoy the presence of his creation. And on the evening breeze, the man and the woman begin to hear his footsteps. One footstep after the other, getting louder, drawing closer. And as the creator draws closer, they only know one thing to do, which is to hide themselves. It was the first time they ever had to do so. You have to imagine before that, they may have ran up to him with open embrace, welcomed his arrival. They, they, they could have just opened up their arms and say, Creator, you're here. Elohim, you're here. Let us walk in the garden together. But this time, they duck beneath the bushes and look and peer. And as he walks into the center of the garden, they cast down their eyes. Fear overtakes them. Fear something they never knew before, where once they walked confidently in the garden, masters of their domain, the keepers of God's good, God's good plenty, his bountiful blessing, able to eat of every tree, at peace with every animal, now they are afraid. And the creator, the one who shared in their image, they hide out of fear. But then a familiar voice, as if knowing they're already hiding, calls aloud, where are you? Where are you? The creator doesn't ask for himself. He knows exactly where they are. But he says it. Because he needs to find out if the man and the woman know where they are too. And so the man speaks barely above a whisper. We were naked and afraid. Two words that weren't previously in their vocabulary. And when we heard your footsteps, we were so ashamed. We had to hide. We can't stand your gaze. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I commanded you not to eat? 
As soon as the question arises, the finger pointing begins. Well, she said, and he said, and they said, creator, this woman you gave me, no, it was that serpent on the tree. But the creator lifted his hand and the voices went silent. You said, they said, they said, you said, I've heard enough. You serpent, you who brought this chaos into my garden, you were clever, but now I leave you cursed. You will crawl on your belly, eating dust and dirt. And you will rage a never-ending war against the seed of the woman's womb. Indeed, you will strike her children and think yourself victorious. But on the day I decree, the seed of the woman shall strike your head and you and all your plotting will be crushed. And as he says those words, this is almost as if the serpent can hear in the distance the sound of hammers falling and nails splitting wood and a voice crying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And then to the woman he turned and said, the children you bear, the ones in your image, they will bring you pay, pain, and you will leap, weep, because many you will lose. Yet despite this, your desire for more children will leave you clinging to your husband, and it's that desire, rather than birth blessing, will hang over your head. And to the man he spoke, because you chose to entertain chaos rather than put it in its place, chaos will enter the earth. The dirt, the ground you find so easy to use, it will work against you. And all your days will be toil. The harmony you enjoyed between creature and creator, between man and woman, between humanity and the creation, all of it will be nothing but a fleeting memory. And the work I left for you to tame and subdue, once a blessing, a, a, an example of generative life-giving work, will be a curse. And because you are dust, to dust you will return. The fallout. Chaos unleashed by the disobedience of the man and woman and the temptation of the serpent. But the creator, in its mercy, would not leave them naked. And with his own hands, he fashioned for them clothing made of skin, a sacrifice to cover their naked frame. But on that day, the creator retreated into the heavens, and humanity, with nowhere else to go, ventures into the wide world outside the garden, the hard ground Beneath their feet, a sign of what's to come. In the safety of their garden, nothing but a distant dream. To be continued. That's where we are in the story. And it's a pivotal moment. 
it's actually the, there's, there's two kind of moments in the story of God in which the story turns, and this is one of them. Harmony, chaos. The good, ordered world of God now turned and left to the forces of chaos. And God seemingly exits the picture. What, we, what I didn't mention here in this retelling of the story was Eden, symbolic of the presence of God, the entrance to the garden gets guarded with a flaming sword. In other words, humanity can no longer freely go into the presence of God. Now, there's a lot to reflect on the, in this story. A lot of questions we may probably have. Maybe, who knows, we'll answer one or two of them. Or you can stay for Sunday school, and that's the shameless plug. But as I've been sitting with this story, what I've been reflecting on this week, and I'll leave this with you, though it's not the only reflection from this, te from this text. I mean, my gosh, we could be in Genesis 3 for months at a time. Is this. In Genesis 1... If you guys remember back to a few weeks ago, Patrick gave us his portrait of God ordering the chaos, right? God takes the chaotic waters and he puts them in their place. And, and with his speech, he, he kind of gives everything its necessary function and order. And so when we come to Genesis 3, when we're introduced to the serpent, if you didn't know, and we probably don't know because we're not ancient Near Eastern Israelites, the serpent is symbolic in the ancient Near East of chaos, Matter of fact, the same word used for serpent in this passage is the same word that gets used for, like, for words like sea monster. That the, that the serpent imagined here is an embodiment of chaos. And so when we're introduced to the serpent, the implication of the text is can humanity, like their creator, order chaos? Can humanity, like the creator, like Elohim, God, can they put chaos in its place? Can they act and live like their creator? Can they fulfill the image of God? Can they put chaos in its place? And the implication, actually, is they can. But only if they adhere to the creator's wisdom. If only they obey the creator's instruction. But we know what happens. They don't. Matter of fact, it's interesting. We often associate the fall with the biting of the fruit. And that would be a correct assumption. But it's interesting that I think the fall begins even before that moment. Notice what Eve, in the text, if you look at your Bibles, says about the fruit. She said it, was, it looked good. In other words, what the writers are doing here, she's making the same assessment that God made of creation. Oh, God calls the world good. But now Eve, of her own mind, of her own wisdom, is calling this fruit she's not supposed to eat good in her own eyes. As if in that moment she is deciding for herself what is good and what is evil. And of course, we know what happens. They don't listen to the Creator's wisdom. And here we are. And it's here I want this reflection I want to leave with us. Genesis 3 is a microcosm of the human story. In other words, it repeats. Every day, we are like Adam and Eve. 
we are faced with the chaos in front of us, the chaos in ourselves, the chaos in others, the chaos in the world around us. And the question is, will we be able to order the chaos? And the implication, like Adam and Eve, is we, we can deal with chaos if we listen to the Creator's wisdom. But if we try to use our own wisdom to order chaos, well, we end, out, end up with the fallout, much like Adam and Eve. You know, when we think of destructive patterns of sin, that's what those are. Ways in which we've tried to order the chaos of our own lives and our own wisdom. The things we've turned to that we think are good, that in reality are not the Creator's intention. And so the fallout of sin, the brokenness of the world we see around us, is all our failed attempts to order the world according to our own wisdom. And so here we are. And the question we're going to look at next week is, so then what's the fallout for the rest of humanity? And that'll be Patrick's job. But before we come to the table, we've been doing this thing where we've been creating space for questions about the teaching. Because when you listen to a good story, if you told a good story to a kid, what's the number one question they ask? Well, why? And so I, I'm very curious. If we can't answer it here, well, that's what Sunday school's for. If anyone does have a, a question about the story before we turn to the table, and if it's unwise to answer in a moment, maybe we can get coffee. I'm not even joking. You can, like, raise your hand and ask a question. Yeah. Say that again. Why is God angry? It's an interesting question. I guess my follow-up would be, where do we see he's angry in the text? It's more like he's disappointed. But then he also clothes them with garments. So he can't be that angry if he's willing to cover their nakedness. It's a great question, though. And maybe you come to Sunday school and talk more about it. But I think, for, I think that's a question we always have to ask when we read biblical stories is, did the text say he was angry? Or have we imported something into the text? Yeah. Oh, man. That's the million-dollar question. Yeah. So, I, oh, I got five minutes on the clock. Perfect. I'll answer this in part, and then I think it'll be a more fuller discourse on evil itself. Oh, and repeat the question. So why did God create this fruit if he knows it was going to sow chaos um, and bring it about in the world? Well, I think there's two things we have to do with this question. First, we have to talk about what the fruit actually is and get into some literary device, and then we have to talk about the nature of free will. So... In four minutes and 44 seconds. <laughs> so let's start with the easy one. Let's start, with, let's start with the literary context. Okay. We get really caught up with the fruit. But the fruit is representative of something. And what most Jewish Christian scholars think is that really it's just a literary device. That humanity did not fall from grace because they ate the wrong fruit but that they made a decision to define good and evil for themselves. G.K. Beale, a great Christian scholar, makes this note. He says, 
the entire structure of the story seems to be that humanity wasn't going to remain ignorant forever, that God was going to teach them what is good and what was evil. The issue is then they subvert that process by trying to decide that for themselves. Now, why does God allow that to happen? Well, what we understand, if we're not going to just believe in determinism, which is we kind of don't actually make any decisions and we're kind of determined either by some metaphysical entity or our DNA to make choices, if we have no will, then, yeah, then God predetermines we eat of the fruit and chaos and all that stuff. But if we do believe in free will, then we have to believe that if God makes us as free creatures, the, the, the basis of freedom is the freedom of choice. And so God, though he wants to teach us wisdom, he wants to teach us what is good and what is evil, in order for us to be free and actually learn what is good and what is evil, he has to make us with the capacity to choose to take that for ourselves. And so that's the kind of the tension in the Genesis narrative is in Genesis 3, we see humanity faced with a choice. Will I learn good and evil from the creator or will I take it for myself? And that's the, actually when, when, when the serpent says you will be like God, he means that. Because who gets to determine what's good and evil? Well, the creator of all things. And so they kind of subvert that. But for them to be free, they have to be able, by necessity, to make that choice. Now we can talk a lot more about free will, but we have two minutes, 35 seconds. Um, but I'm also happy to, maybe or our podcast, we'll remember for the podcast this week. If you guys didn't know, we're doing like a little extra podcast where we kind of talk about the sermon. Um, so, you know, I'll do some Thursdays. I'll do some more reading between now and then. Um, anyone, one final one? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, so she asked, what, what, how do we know that God is planning to teach us about good and evil? Well, it all comes back to the image of God. If we are really meant to be stewards of creation, well, you need wisdom to steward. You need knowledge to steward. How are you supposed to bring out the generative potential of creation without the knowledge to? And so that's kind of like, we have to, I think what we have to understand about reading the Bible is that there's the ex, what's explicit in the text and there's what's implicit. And the, I think the, what I think, and I think a lot of scholars would agree, the implicit narrative of the text is that in order to, be, in order to live into our, the, our being the image of God, God is going to teach us how to be the image of God. He didn't kind of, we didn't, like this idea that we have like the direct download of everything we need. No, no, like, like that the garden, it seems to be the garden was like humanity's finishing school where humanity would dwell with God and learn. And then the, the idea, we get to Revelation, where the garden fills the whole world, that seems to be the original intention, that the Eden, the Edenic paradise, spreads out, fills the whole world as humanity plays its role as stewards. Um, and so to do that, we need to be taught. Um, but we decide to choose our shortcut, and we, we never lose our potential to be stewards. We just look around the world, look around the world for five seconds, realize we've done a pretty bang-up job. Awesome. If you have more questions, come to Sunday School and ask Aria. <laughs> but for real, um, the, the, the orientation of this, of, this, of this series is to tell a story and dwell on the story together. So that's it. Um, band, communion servers, hosts, why don't you guys come to the front and we'll come to the Lord's table together. Sound good? As we come to the table... 
we have to then consider how does God then go about ordering the chaos? Um, the chaos that's unleashed by humanity. And well, this meal is it. This is how God orders the chaos. He subjects himself to chaos. He lets it do its worst, and then he conquers it by rising again. So as we come to this meal, this is God conquering the chaos, but God doing so as humanity. God doing what Adam failed to do. Just as Adam and Eve fail in the garden to, to put the serpent in its place, it's by this meal in Jesus' sacrifice that the serpent is put in his place. And so that's why we come to this table, to celebrate that fact. This is our redemption. God submitting himself to chaos so that chaos may be overruled by the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. So let me pray for us, and then we'll come to the table. Father, we come to this table and we say, Lord, thank you for ordering chaos on our behalf. And thank you for doing it as a human person in your son, Jesus. For letting chaos, sin, and death do its worst to you so that we might participate in the fullness of your life. Lord, we confess that we have too often tried to order the chaos of our, of our lives on our own. And we have failed time and time again. And those destructive patterns of sin that keep us bound, God, they are just the ways in which we're trying to make sense of the chaos internally and externally in the world around us, God. And we repent and we say, we need your wisdom. We need your broken body and your shed blood. We need your son who is the power and wisdom of God. And so we come to you and we say, feed us with this holy food that we might find rest for our souls. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The gifts of God for the people of God stand, come, and receive.